You are listening to Master Coaching with Ajit, a podcast that inspires coaches to impact lives of their clients more meaningfully. I am Coach Ajit, and I'm known for coaching high performers, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm also a serial entrepreneur and author of many books. On this podcast, I am answering your burning questions. I'm also demonstrating and deconstructing behind-the-scenes coaching sessions. Ajit, one of the things that I absolutely love about you is that you're great at prioritizing family, friends, new experiences, and travel. So I'd love to hear what is your view on work-life balance and how is it different from how mainstream views work-life balance? I think it was a few years ago that I was listening to somebody and I was talking to somebody as well about this. And one of the things that really stuck out to me is the reason why we've always talked about work and life balance in life generally, and that's the narrative that has been established, doesn't actually come from how we live our lives now. It comes from a time when we went to work and the work that we did was not necessarily inspiring. It wasn't necessarily something that we were so stoked about. It is the time when we used to work in factories, really. And so what would happen is like you would go to work at nine in the morning and you would work till five. And when you would come back, you would be with your family. And so it was work and life and then work and life. And there were two separate entities. You didn't mix work with life and you didn't mix life with work. And what has happened in the past decade, maybe even a little bit longer than that, is that we've started to choose careers based on things we like. We're not choosing careers mostly, or not necessarily choosing careers just because it's a high income career. We're choosing careers because we actually like that career. We actually like doing what that career gets us to do day in and day out, like the career of coaching or career of transformation. You're excited about that work pretty much all the time. There is no point of dividing work and life when you're excited about your work and your life, right? What about integrating it? Right? What if life and work were integrated together to create a synchronous, beautiful, one cohesive music instead of playing two tracks every day or four tracks every day by saying, this is work, this is life, this is friendships, this is, uh, you know, like my parents and like separating all of them and playing different tracks. What if all of them played one beautiful track that fit your narrative in the best way, right? And so so that really changed the way I looked at work life or prioritization between work and life. I, I said, my work should fit my life and my life should fit my work. And it's when I say life, it doesn't only mean my life as in my kids. My life is my my wife, my kids, my health, my friends, my travel, my experiences in life, my value system. There's no reason to separate all of them because if they are together, I get to enjoy every moment of my life. And I think that's the critical difference that has happened in work generally is work doesn't require as much time effort, if I may call it that, right? Most of the time, so even as intellectual workers, you're, you're not necessarily always working, except if your boss is like an idiot and he wants you to work all the time. Right. But any smart boss also understands now, especially because we're all in this intellectual workspace, is that you want your employees, your team members to actually take a pause. You want them to study. You want them to take a walk. You want them to take care of their mental health because intellectual work is not about the quantity of work that you do, but the quality of work that mm -hmm. you do. And if you're chasing quality, you don't need to necessarily go 
I'm going to go boss the walls 8, 10, 12 mm-hmm. hours a day. If you're doing that, you're probably not producing very high quality work. High quality work does require you to sit and think. Mm-hmm. It requires you to study. It requires you to really kind of engage all your faculties, including intuition, to be able to deliver something that's unique and different and most relevant to the kind of work that is required to be done. So there is no reason for us to think you got to work eight hours a day. For the matter, that's a policy in my in my company, in my division, is that you don't work eight hours a day. I don't track your time. Most of my team is remote, or not remote, they're global. Mm-hmm. And they're not expected to time log. They're not expected to say, oh, tell me what did you do in the last eight hours? Because I don't care what they did in the last eight hours. They could finish their work in three hours. I don't give a damn. All I care for was the work high quality. Was it timely? Did we do what we promised we would do? All of those things are way more important than the number of hours that you put into work. And I don't track hours because of the same reason. So there is no work-life balance per se. Work and life need to integrate in this time because let's say, for example, if somebody's doing intellectual work, in let's say you took a lot of data in the day, like you read a couple of books, you read data reports, it is more likely than not that when you're taking a walk or taking a shower is when all of that data that you captured will come to the idea that really is going to benefit the company or your company, 100%. And that scientifically is because your brain finally, when you take a shower, and that's why all the great ideas come in showers or right before sleep, is because when your brain slows down, it has time to process information because you're not consciously feeding more information. When you're taking a hot shower, your brain's not thinking actively about something consciously. And so what happens is the unconscious finally has the time to say, let me connect all the dots and data and boom, you have the best idea. Now, should I say, oh, this is my lifetime. I'm not going to log this idea. No. Lock the idea. It takes 30 seconds. And then, yes, maybe you will deploy that idea when you actually go to work, but but there's no reason to put that separation because your job's not like the old job. You're not doing physical labor where you need to get out of the office and then you really need to like sit down and be with yourself because you have no other slow time. Your work is mostly you procrastinating as well most of the time at this point because there's not enough work. Most intellectual workers don't have enough work. They are more work that they have to do and then they have to think about the work. So it's not actual work that they're doing. I love that you spoke about this distinction about like doing the work and then thinking about the work because as someone who's highly intellectual and also creative, when I'm sitting here trying to force this idea to come or the solution, it never happens. But when I'm like, I need to walk away, I need to take a hot shower, I need to go for a walk. And when I'm not forcing my brain to think about it, the answer always comes to me. The other thing that I love about your approach with work-life balance, I keep thinking of the word harmony. It feels like music, right? Like when all the notes just all fit together, your life just feels harmonious. So I love that approach. And it's so different than how mainstream views work-life balance. When it comes to entrepreneurship and parenting, they're both great catalysts in our personal development journey and building our self-awareness. I can speak about this. All the insecurities that I had came to the surface when I started my business. It's like, Mm -hmm. I didn't even know I had this issue. What clarity about yourself has entrepreneurship versus parenting revealed? Because both of them have a lot of integration pieces. Like for example, as an entrepreneur, I learned that the way you motivate people is by demonstrating or sharing or working with them and seeing the beauty in themselves. Mm -hmm. As an entrepreneur, I know if I want to get a high performance out of a person for a long time, not for a short time, but for a long time, which is why my team members stay with me for four, five, seven years, right? And the reason why they stay with me is because I'm not going, look at that person and they're doing better than you, which is a classic entrepreneurial thing, right? Put 
each other into competition. Motivator killer. It's yeah, like- <laughs> yeah. But it is a classic thing to yeah. do, right? Especially in startups. Like, look at that person that is hired at the same time with you. Mm-hmm. They're doing so much better than you, right? Competition or building competition is a way to motivate. Acceptable until you realize that that actually is not sustainable because motivation, when driven through competition, does two things. Firstly, you're always in competition with someone which is making you less than. Right, Because when you're competing with someone, you're always chasing someone that actually takes away from creativity because you're thinking the way to get ahead is to beat that person. And so saying, what's the creative direction? So firstly, it's not even a good way to motivate because you're actually getting people just to work harder, but not actually smarter. Secondly, what tends to happen is when you're competing and let's say you're losing for a hot minute, you would never be able to sit down and appreciate what you did. You'll always feel like you're defeated. And so over time, you'll lose all your motivation. That's how frustration is built in a person, right? It's like you feel like you're always behind, you're always behind, you're always behind. And so you feel like, ah, there's no point fighting anymore. So you're killing the fight in the person, taking a high-performing person, becoming a low-performing person Mm. because you've taken away the fight. Mm. Now, how do we keep the fight in a person? You keep the fight in a person by telling them what is the good thing that they did or a great thing that they did. What is the thing that you appreciate in them, right? And then you tell them and show them, that was great. Was that fun? Did you enjoy it? Are we doing relevant work? So what happens then is suddenly the person goes, oh, this is aligned with me, right? Because the person's checking in on fun. Person's checking in, does this feel good to you? Did you enjoy this? Was this exciting? Things that actually matter to a person who is a high-performing person is things like these. They want to do meaningful work over a long period of time, right? So that is an entrepreneurial skill, right? This is how you manage a team. Now, recently, we got our son to join a Bollywood dance class, right? Because why not? And he loves dancing. He loves like, you know, having a great time with music. (laughs) So we said, all right, let's have you join a Bollywood dance class. And we go to this class. There are other kids in the class. And I'm looking at a classic behavior of a parent Mm. and Indian parents where literally there's one girl who's doing the best she can. She's enjoying, she's having a ball, right? She's like kids are like three, four years old. Like they are always having a great time, right? And there's a water break. So the water break, the kids come back and the mother immediately goes, why aren't you doing it like this other girl? Look how well she's doing. Mm. And I'm like, this girl's maybe four, maybe five. Way to crush her dreams. I was like, (laughs) why does she care how somebody else is doing? She's just, like, what is this? (laughs) Yeah. Like, this is not a way to talk to a kid. And I observed how I talked to my son. I'm like, did you have fun? Yeah. Was this so much fun? And she's like, yeah, it was so much fun. I'm going to go do that again. So I'm like, it's, it's a classic way of how I would do in my business is also how I do parenting. It's like, I'm not going and saying, oh, look at that person doing it so well. Instead of that, I'm just saying, are you having a good time doing this? Because if you're not, we don't need to do this, yes. right? But you are having a good time. Now he goes back, he goes, and he's like, he's not tired after an hour. All the other kids are going, oh, I'm tired, I'm dizzy. They're coming up with excuses to not do the thing because of course they've been put into it because their parents have put them into this. Yeah. And on top of it, they're constantly comparing. So how do you feel? You feel defeated. You're like, oh, I'm not as good as that person. Clearly my mom says so. Yeah. So now like there's no motivation to actually do the thing. Right. But what really matters in entrepreneurship or in parenting or in life is to actually do the thing that you love. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're winning or losing because that's all subjective and doesn't really matter in the course of life. What really matters is do you have a good time with the life? Mm-hmm. And, and that I think is the overlap of how you talk to your team and how you are as a parent is the same thing often. 
And I have seen how you are with your son and he, and I, I love how much you put the fun factor as the most primary focus, right? And it's so clear because even in your business and how you speak about, you know, the people that you work with, you speak about everybody with such respect. Like there's just such a level of respect with even how you speak about the people that are working for you and how you prioritize fun and how, you know, you're not really obsessed with them working eight hours a day. It's just, are you having fun? Are you getting the work done? Are you taking care of yourself? And so it's clear, like those are transferable skills. What you've learned in entrepreneurship You've been able to apply that as a father. Yeah. How do you find a balance between working hard and overworking? I'd love to hear your thoughts on the hustle movement versus the anti-hustle movement. So I think there's seasons. There's seasons in life where where you have to kind of fall for the hustle movement and then you have to go to anti-hustle or not hustle movement. What happens is when you're building a new skill or a new capability, you have to work really hard to build that skill and capability. It's just default. It's like whenever you want to learn something new, look at the amount of time you have to put to learn something new. Let's say you've never worked a camera. If I gave you a camera, you'll need a lot of time to actually learn how to use a camera, right? What's the setting? What's the, you know, what's the frame rate that you want to shoot? What's the lighting? All of that stuff. It takes a lot of time. At that time, you may look like you're hustling because you're learning a new skill. But the moment you learn the skill, it's almost autopilot and you don't have to hustle anymore. The challenge is what happens with entrepreneurs is they think the the way they started the business is how they grow their business. Mm -hmm. The way they started their journey is the way they will keep going on in their journey. And that's just not how skill or business is developed. When you're building a new skill, when you're building a new business, you have to work hard. And mostly because you don't have affordability to hire people unless you're very well funded, but that's a different thing, right? So you have to do the thing because there's nobody you can hire, Mm -hmm. right? Secondly, you're most likely doing something where you know one element of that thing really well and the rest has to be built. Right. If you're a coach, for example, you may know how to coach really well, but you may not know how to create reels on Instagram or you may not know how to prospect a client. You may not know how to do a sales conversation. You may not know how to promote your book or whatever that thing is, but there's something that you need to learn. So the thing that you're really good at, you don't need to put a lot of hustle into it because you're already good at it. But things that you don't know how to do you probably have to put a lot of hustle into it. Uh, by hustle, I simply mean you have to work hard yeah, for it yeah. because you're building a skill. So you need to understand the distinction of I'm building a skill versus I am utilizing a skill or I already have the skill. So yes, there is a season in your life if you're building something new you've never done before. And that's why it's very important you choose something that you love, right? Because if you don't choose what you love, then you're going to be not wanting to do the work. You would be like, oh, I don't want to do the hustle. I'm getting burnt out. You're not getting burnt out. Most of the time, you are getting defeated. Mm, I, right? I'm so happy you're that getting you defeated said that. because it's not working, mm-hmm. or you're doing things that you don't like doing, and so you're like, "Yeah, I need to learn this camera thing, but I don't really like doing the camera thing." Then don't do the camera thing, right? Don't hustle for somebody else's idea. Hustle for your idea, and you'll find it doesn't feel like hustle at all. So if, let's say, for example, if somebody, I do this with my coaching students who are businesses and coaching all the time, or even entrepreneurs generally, it's like, for example, there's a trend. If somebody says, oh, you got to build reels, let's say, for example, right? Right now, it's all about Instagram reels and TikToks and YouTube shorts and all of that. But let's say you don't like doing video. That's not your charm. Don't do it just because somebody else is telling you to do it. Do podcast. Write a book. They're equally good. Nobody says there's only one way of building a business. Anybody that says that has never built a real business. They've built a tactic and that worked for them. Good for them. But a real business has everything and anything that can work for it. And that's why it's a business, right? Because you could plug in any strategy and it'll work. Mm. It's the product that works. The marketing can be anything, right? So the thing that we need to understand is it's not hustle. 
hustle is when you're working hard for something that you don't love. If you're working hard on something that you love, it's you just being passionate. Yes. Right? So reframe that. Don't call it hustle. Call it passion. And yes, that will look like working hard or doing things for a long period of time. But you're passionate about it. Anything that you're passionate about, you will do for a long time. Even if I told you to stop. And it doesn't feel like work. You're actually enjoying it. Like this is work, but we're enjoying it right now, right? So it's not really considered hustling. I wonder how many people have gotten sucked into this like, oh, anti-hustle movement and they're not actually really focusing on the thing that they love and they're just like, well, I just don't want to hustle. And it's like, well, there's nothing, like once again, the reframe, there's nothing wrong with hustling if you're hustling towards something that you truly enjoy. Yeah, anti-hustle comes from a place where somebody did something that they didn't enjoy got burnt out because Gary Vee said hustle. And they went, <laughs> yes. I don't want to hustle on Gary Vee style. Well, because you're not Gary Vee, do your thing. Yeah. But he did, they didn't. They followed somebody else's direction, got totally burnt out, mm-hmm. quit their business or did something crazy to kind of go, I hate this thing. And now they're like, oh, I'm anti-hustle. You're not anti-hustle. You, you would do the same thing if you loved doing it. You will keep wanting to do it. You wouldn't want to stop. You will find every opportunity to do something that you love because that's what is loving something. Right, loving something is loving that thing, that person, that that behavior, that birth, that business, whatever it is, so much that you lose track of time. Yes. So it does look from the outside like hard work, but inside it looks like wow, this is just pure joy. I love doing this. Yes. Right. So I I don't think there is anybody that is doing things that they love hate the word hustle per se they may hate the idea of hustle because they don't think what they're doing is hustle anyways. They think I'm just being passionate about my work, right? And I love doing what I do. Why should I box it into something that has a negative connotation? And because hustle has a negative connotation, just generally as a word, it has a negative connotation. Hustling is like on the streets from what I understand. Like that's what a hustle really is. Hustle is hustle people into doing something that they don't want to do. No, that's not what we are trying to say. What we're trying to say is do things that you're passionate about and you will find over time you get really good at it. So doing something that took six hours before will take you an hour or 30 minutes. So yes, you're not working as hard, but that's because now you're competent in that. So of course it doesn't take that long. I love this reframe of hustle. We need to bring the hustle back. I don't know when hustle (laughs) became such a negative thing. It became such a negative thing. Well, I I also started saying hustle as a negative thing because hustle really is, and what people were referencing to hustle was things which they were like, oh, I have to do this for my business. I'm like, no, you don't have to do anything for your business. You choose to do things for your business. You choose to do things for your life. And if you're not choosing, then yes, you're hustling. And then yes, it sucks. Yeah. I'm bringing back the hustle. Are you yeah. bringing back the hustle? Yeah, we can bring back the hustle. <laughs> well, speaking of time, because you were talking about, you know, when you really love something, you lose track of time, right? So how do you find time to do everything you want and need to do every day? Because I know you have a philosophy of time that you say time adapts to you. Mm-hmm. Can you share more about that? So what I've found is that most of the time, and this is for anybody that's listening and watching this right now, is take, like really take your calendar and look mm-hmm. at what you do in a day. And, and you will find that while we all say we are incredibly busy, pretty much anybody that I've had done this exercise with and I've looked at their calendar, I've seen most of the time what they're doing is procrastinating. Yeah. <laughs> they are basically thinking about doing the work and mm-hmm. not actually doing the work. Mm-hmm. And that usually happens because we either overschedule time. Like for example, you would go, oh, I need to you know, prepare for a podcast. I'm going to put three hours to it. It doesn't take three hours no. to prepare for a podcast. It takes 30 minutes maybe. Yeah. And if it takes 30 minutes, put 30 minutes. 
right? But you put three hours because you think you need to have something on your deck all the time. Now, guess what's going to happen in those three hours? You're going to listen to two podcasts. You're probably going to scroll through Instagram or whatever <laughs> is your platform of choice and go through, oh, I'm picking ideas for my podcast. You're not picking ideas for your podcast. You're procrastinating. That's literally what most people are doing is they're procrastinating from doing the work and then they say they're extremely busy. They're not busy. Nobody's that busy. No. Everybody has enough time to get the task done, especially if there's a new business. And that's why it kind of like counters the idea of hustle and passion and everything. If you really are doing work on a new business, there's not much to do. There really is not. Yeah. You don't have a ton of clients. <laughs> you have one product, maybe. You have like two pro- followers. You have like, two like yeah, you have two followers. <laughs> there is nothing much to do. Yeah. Like, so if you're saying, oh no, I'm busy 12 hours a day, look at what you're busy with because mm-hmm. you're probably busy with stuff that you don't need to be busy with. And that's really what I mean by time adapts to you. So if you really look at your time and you say, I'm not going to rely on my eight hour days that I must work, right? I'm going to say, I'm going to work for two hours a day. Right, And time will find a way to get everything that I need to do within those two hours. It'll adapt to my needs. Because after those two hours, I'm going to go work out for an hour. I'm going to take a walk for an hour. I'm going to read a book for an hour. I'm just going to bullshit with my wife for an hour. I'm going to hang out with my kids for an hour. Whatever the heck you want to do. But put that and put that as scheduled time. So time can adapt to you. Because right now, all you're doing is you're saying, I'm going to put this big chunk to my work per se. And so your time adapts to that. So, okay, you're busy for three hours now because Mm -hmm. it's three hours given dedicated to this. And that just doesn't work. It just, time will always adapt to your needs and it's not going to get you to be productive. It's going to keep you in that cycle of always feeling busy versus actually doing something. So my philosophy of time is you need to learn about the ideas of batching and scheduling. Mm -hmm. Batching is your mind resets every single time it has to do a new task. So for example, right before we started recording, I was coaching on a call. We have about 100, some 170 students in a mastermind called Accelerate and was coaching them on a live call, right? Now, after that call, I need to reset my mind to get into a podcasting mode because this is more conversational, that's more coaching, right? I need a reset, but once I've reset it, if I stay in this mode for say four hours, I don't need reset time. I need it 20 minutes before we start conversation. I'm like, hey, listen, I need to reset. Right, because my call went a little over. I was like, I need to reset. So I did about 20 minutes. I was just, you know, fixing the mic. I was just like unnecessarily saying, oh, Matt, let's change this angle. Mm-hmm. Then move the furniture. That was me just resetting right. because I needed to have my mind go, okay, I need to get into conversation mode, right? And so now I'm in conversation mode, but now I'm going to shoot for four straight hours because I'm in conversation mode. So if I have bashed four hours of podcast recording in the same time, I've actually got done four hours of work without needing 30, 40 minutes of reset after every time I switch contacts or switch my task. So what you want to do is you want to schedule and batch. This Mm -hmm. is batching. Four hours of podcast recording, conversation mode on, camera mode on. Let's do four hours of this stuff. This is batching, but it's scheduled. So I know exactly how much time I need. I'm booked till 4.30 in the evening today because all I'm doing is recording podcasts, right? But it'll be all done after 4.30. I go, I walk away. And then I have my own other things that I have to do. And that's what I'm going to do. But it's simply saying, okay, schedule time that it reads. Remember, I'm going to record four hours of podcasts and that will be four podcasts in four hours. So do you see, there's no context which I need. There's no transition time. Four hours of work will give me four hours of output. If not four, three and a half hours of output, whatever it would be, but I will get enough output from a very short period of time. Otherwise, people take hours to record one podcast. Right. Right? So you want to think about what's the way you batch and how the way you schedule. You schedule time 
and then you batch work so you don't have to do contact switch because every time you do contact switch, it takes 30 minutes to switch contact. So when I'm doing emails, I'm going to emails one hour and my entire inbox is clean. Yes. Right? And that's why anybody that sends me an email knows that they will get a reply. It may be two or three days later, but they will get a reply. It might be one line, but it's because in one hour, I'll go through about 200 emails. Right? And that's a lot of emails to go through in one hour. In 60 minutes, I can go through about 150 to 200 emails. But that's because you're completely focused on that task. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not like going, oh, let me watch a clip now or listen no. to music, stretch. No, I'm like, I know in an hour, I'm going to go to my inbox to a level where it's done. Right? Yeah. So I don't have to come back to email until when I have to come back to email. You know, when I was writing the manuscript for my book and had to like re-edit it, I would block out like six hours in a day. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't need six hours to work on my book. I need maybe three increments of 90 minutes. I work very well in 90 minute increments. It's my sweet number. So what I would do is like, I would block out nine to 10.30 and then I would you know, take a break, go do my thing. And then I would put another. And because I needed to reset my energy, I could not just sit. It's like, you can't just sit and just stare at a cursor. Coming. Yeah. It feels like it's attacking you. Your declines yeah, and, dramatically. Yeah, and every time I was stuck with the chapter, I was like, no, we're going to walk away. We're going to write this in our head. We're going to get out into nature. We're going to feel what we want to say. And then we're going to sit in front of the computer. But I mean, a lot of what you're saying is not just time management, but it's also energy management. And it's to understand how you operate. Like if I were to do four podcast episodes straight like you, after that, I'd be done for the day. I'm like done. I'm going to take a bath. I'm going to hang out with friends. So is that how you like... Pretty much, yeah. yeah. I, I have then. I'm not doing anything after that. There's, I know energetically, I'll need a walk. I'll need a shower. Yeah. I might need to just sit down, chill with a cup of you know tea or something. That's what I'm gonna do. Mm-hmm. Like, and I know that's what's gonna happen after I am done here. That's what is literally the next step. Yeah. Right. So that's that's kind of how it's always is. Everybody has a different rhythm. You have 90 minutes. I have 45 minutes to an hour is what my stretch time is. And after that, I know my brain function is not as great. Right. as it would be if I took a 20-minute break and yeah. then started again. Yeah, Community and relationships are a big part of your success today. I'm very grateful to be a part of your community as well. When and why did community become such a huge priority for you? So community and relationships are such a critical part of one's success. I realized that only maybe two years ago when I was recognizing, I was moving from LA to Austin. And I recognized in LA, I was, yes, productive, business was doing good, but I never really felt like I belonged in that city. I never really felt like I was, safety may not be the right word, but just didn't really feel like it was my city. And then I moved to Austin and I started meeting people here. And I realized that my productivity went up, my general energy went up, my way to operate kind of went up, my my frustrations came down, I became healthier, I became more present with my kids, I was more present with my wife. I was like, hey, listen, what's the big change? The big change was the kind of people I was hanging out with. Mm -hmm. Even if I wasn't hanging out with them all the time, but the influence that a person brings, even when they come for a very short period of time in your life, is dramatic. And I really realized that ever since I moved to a new city and I recognized that sometimes in LA, and I'm not saying this is generally everybody in LA, but LA tends to have a lot of people who always want something from you. Mm-hmm. And they have this kind of a needy energy, if I may call it that, or very pretentious energy. They they want to be all hot and sexy, but they're not really interested in you. They're interested in what you do and can they benefit. It seems like a lot of times energetically, which is probably why I wasn't vibing with the city because I always felt like, oh, you just, you're building a relationship because you want something from mm. me. You're not building a relationship because you're curious about the person, because I see what you're doing with other people too, not just with me. Whereas when I came into Austin, I realized people wanted to connect for the sake of connecting and not connect. Even if you are successful, 
to say, you know, you're not vibing with me. So, you know, we're going to yeah. hang out once. We're going to see. It doesn't feel right. It's okay. Yeah. And and nobody minds it. Nobody feels like, oh, why are you not hanging out with me or anything like that? It's like everybody feels into their energy and everybody knows that, you know, without saying it's like unsaid, but yeah. it's very clean energetically. Yeah. Right. And I realized that clean energy fuels me. And it could be different for different people, of course. Everybody's got their why. But but for me, I realized that that's where relationship and friendships, I started to recognize how much influence they were having in my life. I did another exercise about six, maybe seven months ago. Six, seven months ago, I was taking a course. The course was on charisma. And I was watching this course that was talking about how, you know, to become more charismatic as a person. One of the things that the person wanted us to do in the exercise was to, was to mark uh, who do we feel charismatic with and not feel charismatic with, and you know, that kind of stuff. And as I was doing the exercise, I was like, hey, listen, I want to do this exercise just to see who do I feel like I energetically feel uplifted with and who I don't feel uplifted with. And so I did this exercise and I started writing down the names of all the people I know and I started marking them five, 10, you know, like it's the grading system of how I'm feeling more energized and where am I feeling depleted. And I recognized a lot of people I was hanging out with, I would feel depleted after talking to them. And I was like, okay, so when I go to a party, if I speak to a person that depletes me for whatever reason, I become what people would say, an introverted person, right? So I would go, I would find my corner, I'll find those two people I feel safe with, (laughs) I'll just hang out with them through the night and through the day or whatever the thing is for the course of until we are ready to leave. Mm -hmm. And which is also why I would be the person that would constantly be poking my wife and you know my wife, she doesn't want to leave a party. I would constantly, hey, listen, love, we got to go. I'm tired or whatever reason I would come up with. And I was like, okay, so it was all about the setup. It was about who did I hang out with first or in the first few conversations and how did I feel? If I met the right person, I was the one who was not ready to leave the party. Right. Right. So what would happen is that Nita would come sometimes to me and say, time, kids need to sleep, let's go. And I would forget the time and I would be engaged so much in the party. So suddenly I wasn't an introvert or an extrovert. I was somebody who was leaning into the energy of the people I was hanging out with. And if I would lean into the right energy... I was the most extroverted person that could be. And if I would lean into the wrong energy, I would be the most introverted person that could be. Right. So suddenly I realized even proven, supposedly proven labels like introversion and extroversion is not actually true. It's not true. And even introverts would like truly believe I am an introvert. You got to look at who's it that you're hanging out with. Is it your self-confidence that really tells you you're an introvert and an extrovert? Because I realized, and as I'm talking more and more about this, I have had introverts who come back to me and go, you know what? I tried the same exercise and I started realizing that, no, it's all about people that I hang out with. Because when I'm hanging out with friends, like true friends that I love, that I don't hate, but friends that I love, we don't stop yapping. Neither of us. So it's not I'm introvert. I am whoever and however the energy feels. And that's where the relationships really matter. And some relationships are way more important than the others. There's a study, actually, I was literally just reading it. And it showed how over time our relationships and time spent with relationships change, right? So the number one relationship that over after 30 you spend most time with is your love partner, right? Right? So it's so important that you have yeah. the right love partner. If you don't, you're probably going to suffer, right? So if you're in a bad relationship where the partner doesn't fit, you probably want to reconsider and relook at all of that, right? And that's the partner you're going to spend most time with. This is just by data, right? It's somebody else's research, not mine. And then the other relationship they saw is that until you were, I think, 25 or maybe even 30, 
you spend an increasing amount of time with your friends. And after that, it drops dramatically. Instead of spending four or five hours a week, you start spending just an hour a week mm. or something like that, two with your friends. And that's the amount of drop you have. Mm-hmm. But at the same point in time, what you also increase after that age is time in isolation. Mm. So before, if you were spending two hours by yourself, you're spending eight hours by yourself, right? The reason why all of that happens is because we, after a particular age, we become more conscious of our energy. We become more aware of where we are being depleted. And instead of finding the right partnerships, we start spending time in isolation. While I completely am a proponent of time spent in isolation, we must check why are we in isolation? Not because we should be in isolation. Of course, we should be in isolation. That self-reflection is powerful. But a lot of the times we are in isolation because we are not in love with people around us. Right. But if we do fall in love with people or we hang out with people that we love, truly love and feel energized by, we will not want to be that much in isolation. And we would not drop our friendship hours by that much mm-hmm. because we all love friendships. But a lot of us report not having good friendships. Right. Which forces us to want to be in isolation. Well, I wanted to actually thank you for this because last time we were here and we were recording, you had said that. You were like, you know, people just need to stop calling themselves introverts, you know? And I tested that out this past weekend. On Sunday, I went to not one, but two social events back to back. And I was like, I'm going to test this out because there was a voice in my head that's like, I can't go to two social events. I'm an introvert. And I was like, no, I'm not. I am not. I just said, stop doing that. And so I went to two events back to back and I had the best time. I loved who I was with in the first event that I went to. And then in the second event, I drove and I went to another. I loved the people there. And I was out and about socializing probably for about, I would say about six hours, which is huge for me. It is huge for me to be out for that long, but it's so true. I'm like, I don't want to identify with introvert anymore because I just proved to myself that I absolutely love being with people and I actually fuel my energy by being with people. I actually don't get exhausted. It's just what I've told myself. So it's true. Yeah, it works, I know. <laughs> yeah, so I'd love to know this because, you know, you've been running a remote team, you know, Evercoach for many years, long before the pandemic in 2020. Why did you choose a remote business back then? And how has your evolution been as a remote leader? So the reason why I chose to build remote teams or have more people work remotely is because in my personal life, I realized how much I value freedom. Freedom to be wherever I want to be, have the experiences I want to have, the kind of life I want to live. Freedom is one of my primary values, like one of my top four values. One of them is freedom. And as I recognize that, I also recognize that if I want to work with people that in my mind would resonate with me, I need to be willing to accept that they may want freedom too. Mm. I should be willing to accept that they may want to spend time with their family too. I should be willing to accept that they may like traveling too. And if those are all true, they may want to work out of the place that they want to work out of. They don't necessarily want to be like, I need to report to Ajit you know, at 9 a.m. in the morning and leave at 5 p.m. in the morning. I don't work that way. And I don't need them to work that way because again, I have the recognition of saying, if somebody is a high performer, I shouldn't penalize them by being a high performer. And so they should still be eight hours in the work. Like think about it like this. When somebody is really good at what they do, they will probably finish their work in half the time. Right. Now, if you tell them, no, you still have to be in the office, guess what you're doing? You're telling them, I'm going to penalize you because you worked faster. 
Wow. I don't want to do that. <laughs> right? Why? Why would I do that? Somebody is a high-performing person, can get their job done in half the time. I want to reward that behavior. I don't want to penalize that behavior because guess what's happening every single time they work? They go, wow, I get rewarded every time I do things faster. Of course, maintaining the quality of it. Right. Guess what they do next? They make it even faster. Yes. And then even faster. And as they're getting faster and faster, guess what's happening for the company? Company is getting more and more productive. People are going, wow, that person gets this done so fast. What's the system they're using? Oh, that's the system. Let me borrow that yes. system. There is more and more power fuel to the company than if I would say, okay, now come in at nine and you can only leave by five. And if you're not doing anything, just you know, just sit around and fuck around with people. It's actually taking away productivity from people because what, what would a high performer do? Let's say they have finished their work in four hours. The remaining, they still have to pass four hours. Guess what they're going to do? They're going to set up meetings, waste everybody's time, chit-chat, water cooler talk, gossip, do random stuff because they're like, I'm in the office, my work's done, what am I going to do? Right. Right, I'm going to just, I still have to show my face here. So counterproductive, so not needed. Not in the work culture like us. Like, you know, and again, some companies may need people to physically be present, but my type of operation or my type of company is a um, low time, high impact type of work that we do. A coaching session may take only an hour, but it can change somebody's life. Right, A training session may take only 90 minutes, but it can completely change how the person operates for the rest of their life. We are in high-impact work. We don't take a lot of time. And I'm saying as a coach and as a coach training company, you can do one program with us and it could change your career. Mm. Right, I'm not needing you to do 100 programs. Right, You could do one session well, listen to one podcast and your life should transform, right? Or at least you should have some measures to transform your life. That's how high impact work works. And that's my team. Mm-hmm. My team is high impact team. I don't need them to show me that they're working. I need them to know that they are working on something that they love and they're mm-hmm. passionate about and they want to keep doing. And I think that is one of the foundations of leadership that will be the future. Like if it's not there in a workspace right now, it's just about time that there will be a leader that's going to come around and say, this is just dumb to keep people nine to five if they are high performers. I want them to leave so they can have a life and come back and do even better tomorrow because they go, this is amazing. I love this place. They only keep me as long as I need to be here, right? Mm-hmm. And then after that, I can go and do other high performing things because like we talked about, sitting in front of your computer doesn't mean you're high performing, right? <laughs> it doesn't also mean you have the best ideas. Yeah. Your best ideas happen when you take a walk. You take a walk when you're out of office. Yes. Love and service are your two top values. How did you come up with these? And how did you make trade-offs in your career to uphold those values? Love and service are my top two values. And those values come from an exercise, a values exercise that me and my wife, Dr. Nita, did together. And it was actually facilitated by her than by me. When we started a relationship, when we started dating each other, there was a point about four months into our relationship where... She asked a question where we said, if we are going to build a life together, we need to know what's the most important thing to us, right? And at that time, you know, surface level answers is I want to be abundant. I want to be, you know, famous. I want to do this. I want to do that. And she said, while those are all could be the things, let's sit with the exercise of really writing down all of our values and then choosing to evaluate what's most important or what is more important to us. Right. So what we did is we sat down and wrote down all our values and then we start to value rank them. By value ranking, it means if you were to choose between value one and value two, which one would you choose? Right. And then you'd keep doing that with each of your values. And the two values that came to surface at that time, and there were only two, actually there were three for Nita and two for me. Two for me that came on the surface was love and service. Three that came up for Nita was love, 
service, and health. The reason why we know we work is because our primary values were the same, right? Because we will always say, hey, I always want to be operating from a place of love and I always want to be in service to humanity, right? And both of us had that foundational value system or values that were that were so in sync independently as we did these exercises that collectively we were like, if we can stay with those values, if those are our values and this is synchronous to both of us, it would be very easy for us to live together because we know what we'll always fall back to. Mm. We'll always fall back to a place of love. We'll always fall back to a place of service. Now, over time, I discovered two more values for me, and that was health and freedom. So I have four primary values, which is love, service, health, and freedom, and in no particular order, but I don't want any of them to be compromised. I might compromise some of them, for a short period of time, but never for a long period of time. So for example, if I want to be of service and it's requiring me to travel a little bit, I am compromising on my freedom a little bit, but I am still acting in place of service. Right. Does that make sense? Right. So it, it, it can sometimes compromise a little bit, but it shouldn't be for an extended period of time. In extended period of time, all four must be recognized and valued. So that's how we found our values. We, we sat together and value ranked each of our values to find what's the value that is most important to us. And then we found that do the sync together as a relationship as well. So that's how we found our values. Now, how and did, do I trade off for real business stuff on these values? Yes, actually very often. And it's very often also because a lot of the times you would think that what I'm doing or what we are doing in Evercoach or in any of the companies that me and Nita have created or me and my other business partners have created, we do things that are not necessarily smart business decisions because they're not coming from a sound business strategy. They're not coming from, and we know that. We know this is not a sound business strategy, right? But what we also know is that it serves people for a long period of time, right? Or it is more in service than anything else. Like, for example, we run certifications here at Evercoach. A certification, average certification would cost about, in the, if you go out in the industry and you look at certification, it will cost anywhere between $8,000 to $25,000. Right. Mm-hmm. It's very reasonable. It's not unreasonable. You're getting a skill for life. It's kind of like, all right, this is this what you should charge. At the same point of time, we asked ourselves when we were introducing certifications and said, while that, yes, is a reasonable cost, and we could price our certifications to that level as well, is this in the greatest service of the industry? Does it help us create coaching as a skill? Because coaching is not just a profession, it's a skill. You can have it as your life. You must have it for that matter. If you want to have a good relationship, if you want to have a good career, coaching is a foundational skill you must have. Every leader must know how to coach their team members if they want to create a great high-performing team. And if all of that is true, then is it in the highest service for us to charge 8000 put a barrier to entry for people to be able to have the skill? And so because we were from a place of service, we said, okay, how do we minimize the cost while still, of course, maintaining some profit margin, but we don't need to make like billions of dollars here. Like I'm not trying to build a business. If I was to build a billion dollar business, I should be selling e-commerce products or something like that, right? Uh, Or building technology. And I am capable of doing any of that, but I'm building this business because it's an act of love. There's an act of service. So what I would do is, or we would do is we said, okay, we're going to price it $2,500. It's not that expensive. It's something that even somebody in India can afford, for example, like somebody where you don't make that much money, you can go, okay, $2,500 I can put together, right? Still, yes, it's a stretch in some parts of the world, but still is way reasonable than something like $8,000 or $20,000, which Mm -hmm. very few people will be able to afford. So we kind of parry that. We go, okay, what is it that is a better or more active service? We would often do things like, for example, there might be instances where there's a difficult conversation to be had and you could totally avoid it. 
right? So for example, there might be a team member that may be not performing, right? And I could just coast along and fire them, right? It's easy, right? But that's not an act of love. No. Right? That's not an act of love. Mm-mm. Act of love is where I'm willing to have a difficult conversation with that person and say, you know what? This is not working out. What is it that we are doing here? What is it that you're trying to achieve? What is it that I'm trying to achieve? How do we find this balance? It's a much more difficult conversation, often leads to conflict, but it's an act of love. Yes. Right? Because conflict is usually somebody loving something enough that they're willing to go in conflict with someone. Right? Wow, what a, and in a relationship, that looks like an argument. Mm-hmm. Right? Because a fight in a relationship is usually an unmet need or unfulfilled dream. That's what really a fight in a relationship Mm. looks like, right? So if you're willing to lean into saying, okay, what is an act of love? You will be doing things that would be difficult, yes, for a short term, but extremely powerful for a long term and true act of love. So we would lean into, or I would lean into in my team, things that would I don't have to do, really. Like most people would just get uncomfortable and fire the person, find a cop out, whereas I would do the inverse. I would say no. I'm going to lean into this. I know this is going to be difficult. I know it's not going to be easy. I know I'm going to be uncomfortable and they will be uncomfortable. But this is an act of love. And so I'm going to do this. But this all goes back to your approach and your willingness and ability to just lean into the difficult conversation, I think is really because love, service, health, freedom are your core values. Because you love what you do and you love people and you want to be of service, you're willing to lean in, right? So I have a follow-up question. How should a coach who doesn't know their core values as strongly as you know you do start their discovery journey to align their business with their values? Where do they even begin? So if you want to align your business to your value system, you want to start by finding your value system. And all of us have one. We've just never sat down to really discover it. So here's something that you can do. You go to Google and search values, example of values or something like that. And usually you would find somebody has put together a sheet that represents words that have values on Brene them. Brown. Right. Brene, Brene Brown, Brown has, has a great one. list. Yeah. Great. So search Brene Brown values list mm-hmm. or something like that. And you should find that document. Download that document and start doing value ranking straight away. Or highlight the ones that you feel like this is my value or this speaks to me. Like just as words you go, courage, or that feels like that would be my value. All right, highlight it. Right. And now value rank it. And value rank only top three to start with, right? Yeah. And then you can go up till five, don't go more than five because then you're diluting your list and you won't even remember your values most of the time and you wouldn't know how to rate or make a decision. It's paradox of choice, right? So not more than five, minimum three, right? So you find your three values by value ranking it, weigh each of that value that you highlighted by saying which one's higher. If I had a conflict between these two values, which one would I choose? And intuitively, you'll know the answer. Don't look for the right answer. Look for what's intuitively correct for you. Right answer, because nobody else is going to look at this list. This is only you doing it with yourself, right? So don't worry about if the world can justify it or not, right? Just look for what's true for you, what really speaks with you. And that way you'll know your top three values. And once you know your top three values, all you have to do is every time you make a business decision, a life decision, is to ask yourself, is this in alignment with my values? Is this what I truly stand for? Is this what I believe in? And what you will find is slowly it will become an auto-filter process. Even your business strategies will lean into whatever is the value that is true for you. You don't have to think about it after a point. It is natural to you because you repeat it so many times. Like if you were to pick any of my team member and randomly ask them what is its value, they know. 
Yeah. Because I've repeated it enough times. What is the ever coach's value? They know, right? They would say love and service most of the time because health and freedom is not necessarily part of ever coach's values. Those are my personal values. But love and service, every person would know. For that matter, they, everybody wants the shirt that says serve and love because that's how we say those values mm-hmm. in our business setting. And we used to have those for every team member, right? So that's how much your values become a part of your business. And every decision becomes a hundred times easier because you're asking simple questions. Is it of service? Am I operating from love? If the answer is yes, go for it. If the answer is no, don't do it. It may sound like not a savvy, smart business decision, but savvy, smart business decisions never built long-term businesses. And you also don't want to sell your soul in the name of business, right? You want to always be doing things that are aligned with your values. And I know that, you know, you follow the business philosophy that the foundation of all businesses is care. What does that mean? Like, how does care look like in business? And why is it a game changer? I mean, it just seems so simple, right? Like, yes, we should care in business. But for you personally, in, in your business, in your life, how has just using care and and really having that also be the foundation been a game changer? So the number one value, underlying business value, that is going to be the value of future is care. Yeah. And the reason why care is such an important value in, in the future or will be so valuable in the future is because more and more we rely on technology. More and more we depersonalize everything. Mm-hmm. And when depersonalization happens, we as human beings care for personal. This is what we want. We want engaged work. We want to engage life. We want to engage everything. And so when you lean into that, you lean into saying, do I give a damn about the person that is sitting across the table from me? Do I care that they win at the end of this conversation? Most of us become really selfish when it comes to business because we think business is about money. And we become selfish about money because we all feel scarcity of money because of whatever reason, right? We feel like that's the way we get our name in the world or whatever the thing is, right? But what you really truly get your name in the world with, if you want your name in the world, or what you truly find great business principles rely on is the value of saying, can I care for you more than I care for this thing called money? this thing called abundance or money or whatever that is that we call it. But if we can care more for that person, the person feels really held and they can see it in their lives. They can see it in the conversation that you have with them. And because they know that you cared, now you've got a client, a relationship for life. Even if they're not a client, a relationship for life, right? And I think the greatest economy that we all live in is the relationship economy. Mm -hmm. It's like, do we have something that's real, that's human? Right. Very often people would go, I just, you don't have to, you know, reply to every email. Like you have assistant, you have many people that work for you, they can reply to your emails. But if you send me an email, you will most likely get a reply from me. Right? Not most likely. You will get a reply from me. Except if you send me like long-winded spam email, then you're not gonna get a reply. <laughs> that gets deleted straight away. But if you send a genuine thing to me, mm-hmm. I will genuinely reply. Mm-hmm. And I would, or I would direct if I'm not capable of replying, I would direct it to a person saying, hey, I don't know how to solve this for you. Here's a person on my team. And sometimes it's a senior person on my team that I would direct the person to saying, can you help this person? And everybody knows that I will follow up. That did you help that person? And yeah. so everybody in my team knows that if Ajit is forwarding an email, you can't just let it go in this black box because right. he's going to check in a couple of days later saying, did you help that person that we talked about? Right? That's what care looks like. Yeah. But guess what that does for the person? They know... I looked at them, I saw them, I saw the problem, I solved the problem, at least I tried to, right? And that means so much more 
than another marketing gimmick or another sale or whatever that is that we can do to build a business. Also, care is what, and I've only realized more and more the power of care because of the live events that have come back to our lives. Like more and more I started doing live events, I realized that when somebody comes to our event, they go, this is the best event of my life. Like I have, like I've gone to so many events, I just, this is one of the best things I've seen. I realized that the reason why, that is one of the reasons why that is there is because I am not like a god sitting on a pedestal who only sees mm -hmm. them when I'm on stage or becomes a different person when I'm off on stage and off stage. This is what you get on and off and you get all of it, yeah. which means at an event, you could be like, Nita jokes about this, but Nita's like, Ajit, you took a thousand selfies over two days <laughs> in your last event. And I probably did. Yeah. And I probably did. And people would come to me and say, aren't you tired doing this? I'm like, no, yeah. I'm not tired doing this because I know what it means to you to get this photo. It would be amongst 500, 600 faces. I may not even remember taking the photo, but I know what this means to you because you've shared with me what value I've got to your life, right? And because you've shared that with me, could I not care enough to take a damn photo? Yeah. Like it's a photo. It takes 30 seconds. It may take a minute if they want to tell a little bit more about themselves. But that is so much more valuable to that person who has come over their own fears and said, I'm going to go ask for a photo. Because it's not normal, right? It's yeah. not like everybody's going, oh, you know what? I'm so confident I'm going to walk up to everyone and ask for a photo. Yeah. No. It takes they courage. They take courage. To do yeah. They said, am I going to make this person uncomfortable? I really value this person. That's why they're trying to take a photo with you, right? It's not because yeah. of anything else. I'm not a celebrity like Brad Pitt or anything like that where they want to, you know, it's not, a, I'm not yeah. a celebrity. I'm a guy who coaches. Yeah. Right? So they want that photo because of what it means to them. I can care enough to take that photo. Yes. Right? So I don't want to be that guy, that girl that goes on stage, speaks, and then runs away. I don't think that's caring enough for the person. I don't think so either. And I have to say this because it really is true. And I want kind of your newer coaches to really hear this as well. Even when someone hears me on a podcast and they send me a voice note, because I always say this at the end of interviews, I always say to like the audience listening, I go, listen, if you enjoyed this podcast episode, head on over to my Instagram, send me a voice note. And people do. Like people actually, and I respond back with a voice note. And they say to me, oh my God, thank you for using your voice. Like they cannot believe that I took the time. And I'm like, you took the time to literally hit record, use your voice, send me a voice note. Let me know how much you enjoyed. I can't take 30 seconds to send back a voice note and say thank you or like something. So it's just, that's something my father taught me who came to this country in the 70s. And he said to me, he's like, you know, people always chase money. He's like, I want you to chase service. He's like, I want you to focus on service first. He goes, all the money in the world will chase after you. He goes, but mm -hmm. if you just give a shit about people. I mean, yeah. that's what he used to say. He goes, give a shit about people and not just potential clients or people who can endorse your book, but like give a shit about even the person who is serving you your coffee. Like ask them how their day is. It just feels good to do that. You know, yeah. why wouldn't you? And it's so easy to do. Yeah. And it is so forgotten, especially when we get a little bit success. Like we all, not we all, but a lot of people lose their mind and they become so distant from people that they shouldn't have to. Like, why did you do this in the first place? Because yeah. you, somewhere in your heart, you were like, I want to be of service. Yeah. Especially our kind of profession. Mm -hmm. Like, this is the hardest thing you can do. Right. <laughs> to try and change somebody else's life. It's not easy. It's yeah. difficult. You're putting yourself in a position. You're still, you have so much love in your heart that you want to do this. Right. So it really annoys me when people who start with that intention somehow get lost in the journey and feel they are bigger. 
and they are grander and that superior. they can superior yeah. in mm-hmm. some way and forget that they're human. And the person they're talking to is also a human. And can we please slow down for a second and do our best, at least do our best, yes. right, to do it. And yes, maybe there will be a position where you won't be able to hug everyone and take a photo right. with everyone and talk to everyone, but at least make an attempt because that attempt is seen. That attempt comes from heart. It doesn't come from strategy. It doesn't come from some gimmick. It comes from who you are. So remember who you are. It's big, small, doesn't matter. Just know that this is a human business and human life more so, more important than human business. And we got to live it in the most human way that we possibly can. There's a character and I discovered him a long time ago, but I recently just rediscovered him because of just like I was on YouTube one day and I saw one of his videos. His name is Mr. Beast. Do you know about him? Mm-mm. This guy has like 100 million followers. Wow. Something like that, some insane number. But basically, he's, I think, the biggest YouTuber there is right now. And one of the things that he did, and he has something called Mr. Beast Burgers that he started. And there's a video that uh, one of podcasts I like to, like to listen to is called Colin and Samir. And they talk to like many different types of people, entrepreneurs and everything, but technology, all of that stuff. And they were basically following along and saying, we spent 24 hours with Mr. Beast, where he opens his first physical location, Right of Mr. Beast Burgers, they were, they estimated, I didn't get to finish the video, but they estimated 20,000 burgers would be sold on day one. Wow. The record ever sold is I think 2,000 a day. And they were like 10,000 to 20,000 burgers would be shipped today. And you could see like literally lines two days before the burger joint was going to open. And what I loved about it is during that course of video, when he was talking to his staff, he said, you know what, it's going to be a hard day. We're going to be doing a lot of burgers. A lot of people come here with a lot of expectation. They're here because, you know, they want to enjoy this. They want to support this and so on and so forth. I'm going to give a bonus check of $1,000 to each one of you, even before the service starts. Mm. All I want you to do is make them feel cared for. That brings tears to my eyes hearing that. Right. That's like the kindest thing ever. It's, it's like- the kindest thing. And you can see that that person is not just doing it because it's a business play, because you can see how he operates. Like he's going around trying to say, hi. it's 10,000 people. He cannot say hi to everyone. He definitely cannot yeah. hug everyone. But he chooses the path to say, I'm going to do as best as I can. I'm going to physically be there in that store that's opening at next day in 10 in the morning till three in the morning trying to make sure that everything is in place because I want everybody to be cared for. Mm-hmm. So yes, you can become really big where 10,000 people are waiting to eat your burger. Like, which God knows yeah. how special this burger is. Yeah. Uh, but there are 10,000 people waiting for this guy. He could as well just fly in on a helicopter and fly out of a helicopter. He doesn't have to be there, right? But he is that's because he gives a shit. Yeah. And that's why I think he has the largest YouTube following there is because he gives a shit. <laughs>